Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, yesterday's conspiracy theory is today's public policy. The federal government is talking about mandatory vaccination as inevitable. We'll talk about that and also getting kids back to the classroom. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It is great to talk to you on the program today. This is one of these, I hate to say I told you so, and in this case, I really hate to say I told you so types of shows, because uh, what was it, a couple of months ago when Austria was moving forward on mandatory vaccination, I wrote a column, I did shows, I did interviews, and I, I said, don't believe for a moment this couldn't come to Canada. And then right on cue, we have Quebec Premier Francois Legault coming out and saying that there's going to be a healthcare charge. That's what he's calling it, not a, a vaccine mandate, but a healthcare charge. Not just for people who haven't been, this is great, not just for people who haven't been vaccinated, for people who haven't received the third dose. So you could be fully vaccinated in Quebec right now, but because they're changing the definition, you're still going to have to pay this so-called healthcare charge. Now, here's the clip of him saying this the vaccine is the key to fight the virus this is why we're looking uh, for a an health contribution for adults who refuse to be vaccinated for non-medical reasons those who refuse to receive their first dose in the coming weeks will have to pay a new health contribution I know the situation is tough, but we can get through this together. We need to focus our efforts on two things. Getting the first, second and third doses on vac of vaccine and reducing our contacts, especially with older people. So I'm counting on you all. Thank you. And again, he's not telling you the amount it's going to be. We don't yet know the enforcement mechanism or how they're going to deal with it. But this is just, I mean, basically a vaccine mandate by another name. What happens if you don't pay the fine? What happens if you don't pay the so-called charge? This is, again, right on cue. Just look at what Jean-Yves Duclos, the federal health minister, said last week. First, it's a, uh, it's a view which is based on my personal understanding of what we see internationally and domestically and in my conversations with uh, my colleagues, health ministers uh, over the last few weeks. And second, it's a decision that will be made by provinces and territories at some point, uh, whether it, they, they move forward or not, that's going to be their uh, decision to make. But what we see now is that our healthcare system in Canada is fragile. Our, um, our people are tired. Um, and the only way that we know to go through COVID-19, this variant and any future variant is through vaccination. You know, PPE, uh, physical distancing, uh, tests, rapid tests, PCR tests, these are all very important tools. But what will make us move through this crisis and end it is vaccination. And I see in my own province, 50% uh, of hospitalizations now in Quebec are due to people not having been vaccinated. 
that's a, a burden on healthcare workers, a burden on society, which is very difficult to, um, to bear and for many people difficult to understand. So that's why I'm signaling this as a, as a, as a, as a conversation which I believe provinces and territories in support with the federal government will want to have over the next weeks and months. So it's actually a bit odd there if you try to parse what he's saying. On one hand, he's saying, well, this is just my personal opinion. But then he's saying in his discussions with premiers and then he's saying he doesn't know of any discussions. But you know what? From his discussions, it it seems to be happening. So what he's trying to say here is that this idea is not new. This idea is circulating in the halls of political leadership in Canada of mandating vaccination. And again, this is not just mandating vaccination to board a plane or to keep your job, bad as those things are. This is mandating vaccination to exist as a citizen. So what Austria does, they'll fine you, I think it's like, what, 7,000 euros or something if you don't get vaccinated starting in February. Now, the interesting thing about Austria, if I can go there for just a moment, actually, I did go there for more than a moment in uh, November before this insanity But their approach is one that I I find quite fascinating because they implemented this or introduced this near the end of, of November. And they say it's so important. It's so critical. Vaccination we need. But it goes into effect in February. So it's like they're accepting the inevitable permanence of this regime and of this pandemic when they do it. But nevertheless, let's talk about Jean-Yves Duclos here. So he says that they're going to do it. Austria's approach is a huge, steep fine. You get more restrained versions of this in places like Greece, where where, uh, they'll fine a senior, someone who's over 60, uh, 100 euros a month. The Czech Republic is doing something very similar. So they're saying, well, yeah, you you have a choice to get uh, not vaccinated or a choice to stay unvaccinated. But if you make that choice then you've got to pay, uh, you know, this little amount every month just so that you can put it into the healthcare system because that's what they're trying to do. I mean, the Austria approach is is in a way better because it just seems insane on the surface. The Greek approach is a lot more dangerous because a lot more people would go along with that because they feel, oh yeah, well, I mean, you just, it's a hundred euros. Okay. If you make the choice, you, you have to go. But my approach, whether it's Austria, Greece, Czech Republic, Germany is also mulling a mandatory vaccination as well. And it's interesting because the, the Nuremberg code which implores, because it obviously came in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, experiments that were done on people by Joseph Mengele and others in the Nazi regime, the Nuremberg Code, which a lot of people have cited in the context of vaccination and the opposition in the Nuremberg Code to human experimentation and all of that. And I've deliberately not gone down that road previously because I I know people will make a connection and will hear something in that 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 isn't necessarily supposed to be there. But I'm going to bring it up now. Because when you're talking about mandating vaccination, you are not just talking about, uh, you know, violating the prohibition on, on live human experimentation. You're, you're talking about something more fundamental, which is the obliteration of consent, that you no longer need to consent to a medical treatment because the state is mandating it. The state is making it so that you no longer have any such choice. So Germany, of all places, should be very keenly aware of what it's doing if it decides to go the Austria route and prohibit the idea to make this choice for yourself, to mandate vaccination. But all of these countries in the world are doing this. 
Now, if Canada does this, they'll probably not go the Austria route. They'll probably go the route of, oh, you just pay a little fine. And some people will say, well, yeah, it's still good. You still have a choice. But then there's the question of what happens if you don't pay the fine? What happens? Even if the fine is just, you know, 100 Canadian dollars a month if you don't get vaccinated. Maybe it's $100 a year. Who knows? What happens if you don't pay the fine? Right now, in most parts of the country, if you do not pay an administrative fine, you can be thrown to jail. You could, as a less severe measure, have your driver's license not renewed. They have some power they can put over you, but you could ultimately be thrown in jail. So if the government makes vaccination mandatory, even if they just put a little teeny tiny fine, even if they just put, you know, a a dime is the fine, 10 cents is the fine, doesn't matter. Once they are mandating it, they are crossing a threshold from which there is no turning back. And that is that you no longer have the right to control what goes into your own body. You no longer have the right to make your own medical decisions. And do not for a moment ever understate the importance of that because that is key and and for all that we've talked about vaccine passports and vaccine mandates all of these things which are terrible all of those pale in comparison to mandatory vaccination to force medical treatment which is the idea that Jean-Yves Duclos is not championing he's saying it's just it's out there it's circulating and he personally predicts it is inevitable now his office later followed up According to a piece here in Radio Canada, his office later sent out a statement and said, well, yeah, but it, it's just up to the provinces. It, it's, it's just up to the provinces. Now, the reality is the federal government could implement this if it wanted to. It doesn't mean it wouldn't and shouldn't be challenged, but the federal government could, you know, use its criminal law powers in the Constitution to do this just as the provinces can use their public health powers. Now, this obviously comes down to premiers now needing to say, and Canadians should be demanding the premiers say, heck no to this. The first and most vocal was Jason Kenney, who tweeted his opposition to this. He said on Twitter, Alberta's legislature removed the power of mandatory vaccination from the Public Health Act last year and will not revisit that decision, period. While we strongly encourage those who are eligible to get vaccinated, it is ultimately a personal choice that individuals must make. Now, those are strong words, and obviously I'm not going to knock him for them because I'm glad he's saying that. I want to see more of that from his colleagues across the country. Scott Moe as well in Saskatchewan said, we strongly encourage everyone to get vaccinated, but in Saskatchewan, this is a personal choice. Well, the problem is that both Scott Moe and Jason Kenney also said that when it came time to denounce the vaccine passports, which they did for months, Kenney and Moe said, yeah, you know what, in in Alberta and Saskatchewan, that's not how we do things. And both of those provinces still have a vaccine passport regime. So this idea of being against it before they were for it is something that was there with vaccine passports. So I'm a little bit unnerved, even if they're saying no to mandatory vaccination, knowing what's happened in the past. So, I mean, certainly you've got to keep up the pressure there. Ontario, I asked Doug Ford's uh, spokesperson, Ivana Yellett. She did not respond to me. I haven't seen anything about what Ontario's doing with this elsewhere in media coverage. BC, uh, Bonnie Henry, the chief medical officer, officer there has said that she wants to get out of the mandate business altogether. Again, BC said that previously, and here we are with a BC vaccine passport. 
want to play a clip from a January 9th interview with New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs on Evan Solomon's CTV show. This interview has a lot. I think it's like 55 seconds or whatever, but there's a lot packed into that that we will need to unpack in a moment. But first, take a look at the clip. I'm in the case that if, if you can accommodate, you know, we always thought 90% or so was, but one time we thought 75% was herd immunity and then it went to 90%. So is 90% the right number? And if we have 90% people that are fully vaccinated and, and continue to be so, and that allows society to function as normally, then that's fine. Then, then that, but we haven't gotten to that point. So if we continually have outbreaks because of the 10% that refuse to be vaccinated, then we have to go to the next level. So I would say accommodation is, you know, you look at flu shots, you look at a lot of things that we do as routine. This needs to be routine. But we have to decide first and know that would that 10% be jeopardizing our health system? And right today, I think because we haven't stabilized with this COVID uh, virus, uh, we don't know that. But that is a key factor on how hard you need to go. So uh, that was New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs. So first off, he defends the moving goalposts. He's like, oh, yeah, we used to think it was 75. Now we think it's 90. Maybe we'll get to 90 and find that that doesn't work either, and then we'll have to do something else. So he, he's acknowledging these moving goalposts and defending them and saying, yeah, we, we have no idea. Maybe there will be outbreaks. Maybe there won't be. But then he's also saying something here, which is that if they get to 90%, and if there's still COVID, then we will have to go to the next level. And in the context of talking about accommodations for people that can't or don't want to get vaccinated, it sounds like, not explicitly, he's alluding to mandating it to go after those holdouts. But again, they're talking about it in, in this world, a 90% vaccination rate. And he's saying, yeah, but we got to get those last 10. So of all the different changes and all of those different locations for the goalposts, the one now that we're seeing is 100% vaccination. You know, two weeks to flatten the curve, just a couple of weeks longer, when there's a vaccine, when 75% of people are vaccinated, when cases are down. Now it's when there's zero COVID and then when there's 100% vaccination. These are all of these things. But a lot of these are, are just completely mythical ideals. They're not possible. They are not possible. We're not going to see 100% vaccination rate. I mean, even if you do mandate it outright, you're just not going to get there. That is not a, a realistic expectation when people do, for whatever reason, have their issues with this and other vaccines. But New Brunswick is entertaining the idea of taking something to the higher level. Go with, Not a higher level, but to the next level. That's where New Brunswick's going. So with this on the table... In a couple of provinces, and by the way, more often than not, the provinces haven't said anything at all. I mean, I don't know how PEI or Newfoundland are feeling about this. I, I don't know how Manitoba is feeling about this. And, and we're reaching out. We're trying to get an answer on this because I want every single premier in this country to stand up and say what Jason Kenney said, which is absolutely no in no uncertain terms. And here's what I would ask them. And if I ever go back on this, I am going to resign. That's what premiers should do. They should stake their political legacy, their political careers, their political power on this idea. Every premier should be able to take a stand and say, I oppose mandatory vaccination. And if I ever change my mind on that, I'm going to resign because clearly I am unfit for public office if I go back on my word like that. That's what needs to happen here. 
I'm not optimistic, but that is absolutely what needs to happen. And I go back to a story we've talked about a number of times. When in Ontario, the provincial government gave police forces the power to stop and question people. It was around the time of the second or third or, I don't know, 47th stay-at-home order. And, and they gave police the power to stop and question people about why they're outside of their homes. And in the span of, I think it was like 48 hours, Every single Ontario municipal police force, everyone from the London, Ontario police, the Ottawa police, the Toronto police to small towns, every single one of them said, we are absolutely not going to do this. And, and that was important because when every single police department is saying, we are not going to avail the, ourselves of this, this power that you've given, that is what leads to the power becoming nullified and the province later backtracked. So I, I think something very similar needs to happen here. The federal government drops a hot potato or just a grenade, a live grenade in the laps of the premier saying, yeah, I, I think that mandatory vaccination is coming down the pipeline, but it's these folks here that are going to do it. Every premier should be standing up and, and saying, yeah, no, no, I'm not. No, we're not. We're not doing that. We don't support mandatory vaccination. I mean, if I were a premier, I'd be looking at the federal government and saying, you want mandatory vaccination? You do it. You do it. He, so it's like the federal government is trying to give a marching order here. They don't want their hands dirty by something they clearly support. So the, again, and I, I don't have any inside knowledge here. I'm not saying at the first minister's meeting, there was an agenda item about mandatory vaccination. But the fact that more premiers are not denouncing this suggests that perhaps what Duclos was saying is true, that this discussion is taking place, even just in a, in a small way. So every single person in this country needs to demand of their MPs, their MPPs, their MLAs, their MNAs. I think there's another M something A. But every elected representative you have federally and provincially, you should be asking right now, will you take a stand on record and denounce mandatory vaccination? And remember, I, I talked months ago about that Webster Dictionary had changed. Or was it, was it Webster or Merriam or whatever it was? They had changed the definition of anti-vaxxer to anyone who opposes a vaccine mandate. Never has it been more important to divide vaccination and mandatory vaccination. The mandatory is the part that I care about. You can make your own decision on vaccination. That's your right. But the mandatory... Absolutely everyone should oppose that. Even if you're fully vaccinated, boosted, you could be triple dosed, quadruple dosed. You could have two Pfizer's, a Moderna, an AstraZeneca, and a Sputnik for good measure. And you should still be saying that was your choice to make, not the government's. From Pierre Trudeau's great proclamation to the government has to stay outside the bedrooms of the nation, Justin Trudeau's dramatic, dramatic proclamation. Let me play it for you. His dramatic proclamation of a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. This country is a country of openness, of respect, of compassion, of the rule of law, of the rights of the individuals, of freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from crime, freedom to love who you want, and not be judged for it. Freedom to do what you want with your body. Oh, there you have it. Yeah, a woman, everyone, everyone has the right to do what they want with their own body. Well, except when it comes to vaccination. That's where things have gotten. 
So yet again, yesterday's conspiracy theory is today's public policy. As I said at the beginning of the show, I, it brings me no joy to say I told you so, but I did. Now let's take a stand. When we come back, we will be talking about kids in schools and perhaps some good news on the horizon. We'll talk about that straight ahead. Stay with me. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to the program. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. And in my province of Ontario, kids are still out of school. One story came out last night, which suggests they may be headed back on schedule on next Monday. So in just about six days from now, the problem is that this government tends to flip-flop, you know, seven or eight times before it lands on what it wants to do. And more importantly, I don't think they can at all say a week out what they're going to be doing in a week, unless they're just making this purely for political reasons. But uh, nevertheless, other provinces are, are doing very similar things. They're talking about sending kids back on January 17th, the 10th. We'll, we'll get to the list in a moment. But the reality is kids in in schools has become one of the trans-political and trans-ideological issues of the COVID era that I, I think is one of the big reasons that the tide is turning, as I've been saying for the last few weeks in the pandemic. People are very much angered by this. Parents who are not conservatives by any stretch, they're not fire-breathing libertarians, they're parents who love their kids. And they're turning on the alarmists in the lockdown crowd, I think, over this issue when kids once again are plucked from the classroom and forced to sit on Zoom all day, like like adults who are miserable enough doing that, but uh, kids in particular who need the socialization. Kids like being around other people. Adults, uh, certainly of a, of a certain age, don't. So that's where we are now. It's changing, but governments are still beholden to a lot of the people that think that kids are just disease vectors and shouldn't be in their schools. So I want to talk about this because there has been a growing campaign and we've seen rallies across the country of people trying to put kids back in the classroom where they belong during the school year. One of the big advocates here has been Bronwyn Elsa, who's the founder of the Ontario Families Coalition and joins me now. Bronwyn, it's good to talk to you. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Why why is this such an important issue? Because, you know, for all that we've been consumed by lockdown in general, the one that really seems to be triggering a lot of emotion and a lot of parents across the province and the country right now is kids yet again being pulled out of school. Yes, it's very unfortunate, again, that our children have been dragged through politics uh, completely throughout this pandemic. Their mental health has completely been ignored. And unfortunately, we've ignored science and having the longest school closures across Canada. Ontario has been uh, completely failing our children uh, by having these continuous school closures for such long times. And uh, it, it has to stop. We've been doing everything we can throughout this pandemic, uh, who myself have been advocating to keep schools closed and uh, We've had petitions that have had tremendous success in numbers. People are, are angry and upset, but still it doesn't seem to change anything uh, with our uh, with board where he makes decisions uh, when he's put under pressure and he ignores science and he makes political decisions uh, that override science. And that's just wrong. You need to follow science and make sure that our kids have in-person learning. And that's for all ages, not just for uh children that are vaccinated um, that are in high school age who have had that advantage to have the double dose. Uh, but for all ages, from JK to grade 12, all ages need to be back in school absolutely no later than January 17th. Every day counts. 
there are two in- injustices here. One is the the actual uh, issue you just touched on there, which is uh, shutting down school and, and all of the issues that come along with that. The other has been the lack of consistent and coherent messaging on these things and, and just the complete yo-yoing. Ontario is a great example. It's the province in which you and I live. We were hearing as of, I think it was what, like uh, October, like you know, January 1st or December 31st or whenever it was that we were going to be getting just a little two day, two day bump that the school year was going to be pushed back from January 3rd to January 5th. And then that week we hear, okay, actually it's going to be two weeks that they're going to be online. So within the matter of of three days, the uh, policy had just completely reversed. I mean, how are parents supposed to plan when you're just getting such a a completely sporadic or, or erratic approach to policy? It's, it's ridiculous. Unfortunately, I wish I could say I was shocked when, when that happened, but it seems to be a consistent tendency with how our government works is that they like to keep us on the edge. There is no uh, rhyme or reason to follow through on something. So I, I personally, because we I've been advocating for schools to open uh, for two years now, I knew that the day that he said, uh, Kieran Moore, I agreed with everything he said. And I said, finally, schools will be open on January 5th. I trusted him, uh, but I did not trust what was going to happen in that two-day gap. I knew that my kids would not be going to school because I knew immediately as soon as that news hit that there would be other people uh, who are advocating to keep schools closed until they have uh, measures put in place that they want to have while they're in school on the first day and not wait in due time like other essential workers to have these things delivered to them. So uh, Colin Furness's letter uh, really unfortunately went off on hot fire uh, advocating uh, for medical officers of health to push to keep schools closed for longer. And then that also was a domino effect with the OSSTF and EFTO also advocating to keep schools closed until they had the N95s, until they had HEPA filters, until they had, um, I think even vaccinations for younger ages was also on that list and to have educators also vaccinated before January 5th. And I think I even saw smaller class sizes, which is completely not gonna happen within the next 20 years. So they always put that in. So I I saw the dream list come out and I knew that we were going to be royally screwed because I knew that it was already being lobbied and uh, that people were trying to do everything they could who wanted schools closed. They were doing everything they could. So we had a letter prepared to try and advocate um, against that and we were sending it. We we also thought section 22 was going to happen, but that didn't even go forward because Ford didn't go that far to to keep forward with this plan. But I basically had no faith that what Dr. Kieran Moore said, which I agreed with following science was going to happen. So I I knew we were going to end up into a a complete bomb. And the stress of that myself as a parent and advocate and uh, was just rocking me because we were all watching this sort of bomb happen online on Twitter. I don't know if you were observing it, but on Sunday night, we all knew that something was not going to happen properly for our kids this week. And then we got the final news because it was being leaked everywhere. The stress uh, was awful and intense and it's just a roller coaster for all of us. And I'm also an early childhood educator. Um, I have been working throughout this entire pandemic uh, without any of these things that my uh, children's schools um, have put in place. I don't have N95s accessible to me. I don't have HEPA filters. We just have windows open. I work with unvaccinated, unmasked kids all day. Uh, So for me, when I leave my home every day and I'm thinking I'm going to teach my students and I want to be there in the conditions I'm in, 
and I'm proud to be there, but at the same time, I'm deserting my children where they have better conditions than I have at my work and they are staring at a screen where they could be safer in school. Uh, Dr. Kieran Moore completely was spot on. Kids are safer in school. That is something that seems to be pushed aside and ignored throughout this pandemic. And that is what we need to remember because right now kids are not safe. They're going, people have gone to Florida <laughs> if they can. People have gone to learning pods. People, people who have been in this and have the privilege to have not wanting to tolerate this anymore. So how is that safe? And, and it's not. You, you touched on a very important point, though, there, Bronwyn, which is that you're not arguing and people who want kids back in school are, are not saying that, you know, we just want this in spite of the science. The, the arguments you're advancing are, are that the science supports school being a, a safe place for students right now. Exactly. That, it's, it, that is the safest place. They have the, the most safest uh, Put, sort of measures already put in place compared to places that are already open, which essential workers like myself, daycares don't have. And, and we should be open. Daycares and schools are essential. And, and we as ECEs don't have a union. And that's why we have been open throughout the entire pandemic, because we don't have anyone advocating to close us constantly, thank God. So it's really a blessing for me because I want to be with my students. But at the same time, it, that's the political part that overrides the science is that our schools are constantly closed because we're dragging everything in that people from uh, in their political agenda want during this pandemic to, to sort of bring in to push our kids to not have in-person learning. And, and it's I want smaller class sizes. Everyone wants that for their kids. But that is not going to happen. You know, it's just not a realistic goal to happen and not something we should keep dragging into our list that we want to check off in a short time frame. If I can jump in there, there are a lot of parents in this province and I and grandparents and aunts and uncles, and I, I think more and more of them are turning against the Ontario government by the day. In fact, every day that this school shut down, this uh, supposedly at this point two-week shutdown goes on, more parents are, are turning against the government. So, so if it is being done for political reasons and from a political agenda, who's the constituency? Who's winning from this? I, it doesn't make any sense. I, I don't. I, I think Ford was doing this originally for maybe what pushed him over in the political decision to, to close schools. I, I don't know. I, I think it was the political pressure. I think he's being lobbied. Uh, I maybe I have no idea what drove him originally to do this. Maybe it was possibility, uh, the medical side, thinking of capacity. Maybe that was something that made his decision because of being overwhelmed in the hospital with the shortages. I, I don't know the specifics, but th there was, it, this doesn't make sense why our kids are constantly going through this with the school closures where other essential workers are, are managing and not closing. We, I mean, we have staff shortages at work. There's lots of people who are going through shortages, but we're still open. And it just, we, we the sort of hypothetical possibilities of the, the worst case scenario always seem to get in the way of moving forward and opening schools. And, and that is the biggest problem. As soon as they said, you're not going to open schools, we knew we were going into this repeat of what we've gone through for the last two years, where it's not two weeks, it's not two days, it could be four weeks, it could be six weeks, it could be eight weeks, it could, they'll come up with every sort of different uh, sort of excuse. And, and that's, we've had it. I've had it a long time ago, but you're right. The, the, it's shifting where it was last year, where people were scared to speak out and to be honest about how damaging this was to kids. And now there are people who are coming out being vocal that this cannot keep happening anymore. Yeah, it's ridiculous.
you know, we're at we're at now coming up on on two years since the the first lockdown in Ontario, the first shutdown of schools, and and most lockdowns in in Canada were imposed around that same time, March 2020. And you know, as much as adults, I think rightfully complain about the effect it's had on our lives, our livelihoods, our families, and all of that. You're very keenly aware that that for children, it's a lot different. It's a greater proportion of your life the younger you are that's been consumed by this. If you're six years old, you have been in school for a couple of years, this is all you know. Even if you're eight, nine years old, this is now becoming more and more of a share of your time in in school. And and we may not, and and again, I I realize this is a terrible scenario no one wants to envision, but but we may not totally know the negative impact and, and the scope of this for years to come when we see that socially and educationally uh, a pretty critical point in children's lives ha- has just not been there. Yes, it's definitely, uh, I, I would, when I say, look, I'm, we're focusing on schools, that is our mm-hmm. main focus. So with school closures, it's definitely going to be haunting them in ways that they don't know for a long term, or this has become their new norm for them, unfortunately. So they don't understand the confusion. You know, why can't I go to swimming one day? Or why can't I go to school one day? It, it's the inconsistency and, and being an early childhood educator, I understand kids need structure, routine, they thrive on it. That's how they learn. So having the inconsistency for two years uh, you know, almost marking two years of, of this flip-flopping is, is just very damaging for them. And it's delaying them with their uh, education and early development, uh, even, and especially for older kids as well, for teens, this is affecting all ages. I have younger kids that are four and six, both with special needs and, and it really rocks them. But I know other families of my friends and they have teens and it's rocking their structure and, and routines as well. So all ages need to be back in school and, and we need to, you know, schools never should have been closed because they are essential and they've always the first lockdown that we had with schools closing everything shut down everyone was not understanding what was happening it was a very you know we didn't understand what was happening we're all scared and after that that should have been the last time that schools were closed and and we thought from a medical perspective that people you know there was the evidence and science is staring everyone in the face. There's not, there's very small group of medical professionals that support school closures. There's pretty much unanimous that schools should always open. And, and it's just, I don't understand. I do understand it's the politics. So I understand why, but I I want to, to be uh, brought up and called out that it's enough. We can't do this to our kids anymore. They have to be in school and and the damage is going to haunt them, unfortunately. And I hope that um, the early intervention is thereafter for support for them because it's going to be affecting their mental health for quite some time. Just finally, we look at the national landscape here. You had Saskatchewan, which didn't close schools at all. Alberta put a bit of a, bit of a pause and they came back, I think, as of yesterday. A lot of provinces in Canada seem to be doing what Ontario is doing, which is put in that little two-week delay here. Are you optimistic that common sense will prevail here and that at the end of that two weeks they'll be back? Or do you fear? I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. And, and the reason we're different is because... Uh, EFTO and OSSTF um, or these are the the big unions just for those not familiar with them yeah sorry yes uh, yeah it's become rolls off my tongue now um yeah so the unions in Ontario uh, are the biggest so the most controlling and they have they make the most money out of all of them across North America so there's a lot of power there so it, it's like their own political party that's at play here that that is bigger Alberta does not have that um other provinces don't have it Ontario is very unique so unfortunately that's why 
we have been in this mess for so long is because it's not just uh, following science. There's other people behind the scenes who are putting intense pressure uh, to keep schools closed constantly for their own political benefit. And, and I support everything they want implemented into schools, um, uh, but you do it while the doors are open, like we do today. If we wanted to get N95s, if we were gonna order them, you still show up to work and you wait till they're there and you don't just close everything. It's just not the way you happen. And nurses are doing that as well. They don't have access to N95s unless they're in the ICU, but they're still open. They're still having, I mean, obviously a hospital you can't close, but grocery stores don't have N95s. There's TTC workers in Toronto do not have N95s. They're all running while they're waiting for these things to happen. So I, it just, there's no excuse, but that's the power of the money that's driving these, that, that is always the pressure where they have these resources um, to, to constantly put that pressure on it. And that's the unfortunate part that I, I don't know how it's gonna change, but it, it's, it's depressing to see how it's just completely taken over our children's uh, best interests and their mental health and rocking it because they are the power ones here. And it pushes forward in my, to make uh, decisions that are not following science. I don't know if he thinks he's gonna sway a huge vote of union members for the election, but I, I certainly can tell him that he's lost many PC supporters uh, throughout this pandemic um, with school closures because people who did support him before uh, with their kids being out of school for so long will never support him again unless he wakes up and realizes that he cannot do this anymore and he needs to open it for all ages. This is going to ruin him politically. Well, yeah, I mean, and again, on a side note, I think a lot of these union members are also parents themselves, surely, like they're dealing with, they, they must see this with their own children. The, the teachers that are doing Zoom school may have the next room over their own kids that are uh, students in, in Zoom school. And, and when I say unions, I, I, I want to be clear, I don't ever mean individual educators as well, because I have very, tons of friends who are members of the union but they want oh, to go back no that that's an important point i've never i've never seen such a great divide as between the teachers union and the individual teachers yeah it, it and that's the part where they uh, i have friends that are you know just beside themselves where they they are watching their kids crumble they're watching their students crumble and and it's they are trapped themselves in yeah. this system where they have no voice because it has risk for their job so uh, and that's where i'm thankful i'm not a part of that in a union where i don't have that you know thankfully so i i feel for them and, but what do they do it's like they need to come out on mass themselves to, to speak out against this where, I, and I don't know what the risks are. You don't want to lose your income. You don't want to lose your job. So there's a lot of risks on that because throughout this pandemic, I've had so many people come into me and say, Shh, you know, thank you, <laughs> keep doing what you're doing, but but they can't speak out and they can't give their name. And, and it's just, it, it's deeply saddening to see that, you know, there's that much control. And, and I think that's also was what we were going through in the beginning of the pandemic where there's there were so many medical professionals as well with their association who wanted to speak out as well and there was only a select few people who really were always going no matter what for the sake of our kids and really those medical professionals are the people and advocates and people who really do stand out and go across for the risks are the ones who are going to be remembered in my opinion through history for saving our children and doing everything they could and it 
has a lot of risk now for you, but later on your children will remember this in history. And that's where I think it is. And, but there's a huge shift, I think, with medical professionals that, you know, with that letter that Dr. Alana Golden sent out um, and totally led herself to get doctors to sign the amount of signatures that happened in under 24 hours was huge because you could tell doctors that had kids were, were done. So that's why it's, it's, it's just shifting now. Thank God for our kids. Very well said, Bronwyn Alsop from the Ontario Families Coalition. Thanks so much for your work on this, truly. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. So I don't have kids. I I have nephews. I I see the impact there. My uh, sister-in-law shared a photo of my oldest nephew's scowling face as he was sitting at his laptop the first day back because he doesn't want to be there. I mean, it's funny because as a kid, I, I remember school is not a thing you love. I mean, you love your summer vacation, your winter breaks, your weekends, but if it's taken away from you, as it has been for kids for so long, it's something that you're losing. And obviously the kids themselves are very aware of what they're missing. But I I meant that point I raised with Bronwyn. I mean, it may take years before we start to see. I've just heard anecdotally from a couple of people I know in academia that they say essay quality writing has gone down in first-year university students because they weren't getting a, a really critical education they needed in, in their latter year of high school. And just imagine this, at, at a point at which development is still very much happening for younger kids, what are they missing socially, educationally, reading, writing? What's the caliber of the education, the access they're losing to early childhood educators for kids that have more direct needs with that? I, again, it, you don't need to have kids to understand just how devastating this is and how cowardly how cowardly the politicians are for caving to the doctatorship when everyone else in the province including most people who do deal in science for a living are saying keep the schools open kids are not vectors kids are not these just instruments of disease the risks of shutting them out of school outweigh the risks of keeping them in school this is so simple, yet government seem to be missing it. So good on Saskatchewan and Alberta and uh, most of the U.S. for realizing that. We've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the show today. We'll be back in a couple days' time with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.